When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. Welcome to your Friday edition of Football Social Daily, which today is full of more speculation than your elderly neighbour's front room as they discuss that new couple who've just moved in down the street and why do they need such a big car? What are they doing with it? And why does he work such funny hours? We are going to be weighing up what impact the potential change in rules around substitutions might have as the IFAB get ready to sanction five changes in games going forward. Will the Premier League follow suit? We're also going to be offering conjecture on the new ownership of West Ham or the potential new ownership as rumours surface about another takeover at the London club. Could this be the real deal? Takeover-wise, this time around, and as it's almost November, only two months until the transfer window opens, so of course those transfer rumour mills are firing up again, and we're going to be contemplating the truth behind a few of the rumours that have caught my eye over the last 24 hours. Offering their guesstimations, opinions, and just wild shots in the dark, no doubt, as well, on today's podcast, Niall McCorn. Hello, Niall. Hello. I feel like that was just a great synopsis of Coronation Street. Just the start of that <laughs> intro there. Football is the great soap opera. And Marley Anderson's with us as well. How you doing, Marley? Good morning. Yep. Happy to uh, to link us with Messi and Hazard and whoever else is today on the, in today's random bag that is the gossip column. No Messi rumours today, but you might have hinted at one of the transfer rumours we will be discussing shortly on Football Social Daily, which is your daily Premier League podcast. So undoubtedly the most up-to-date top flight pod you can find. Make sure you've subscribed or followed this show in your podcast app so you don't miss all the upcoming shows which are coming at you thick and fast. But let's start off with that news from the IFAB. They are set to sanction the five substitution rule on a permanent basis. It was something that was brought in temporarily originally as a result of the coronavirus pandemic and the idea that footballers wouldn't be able to cope with the stress of extra games in a condensed season but it has been carried on in some countries long term not in the Premier League the Premier League stuck with three substitutions this season it was only five during project restart but now it looks like it's going to become a permanent rule Niall what are your thoughts on this I mean as always with football We have this thing where any change of rules, any difference in what we're used to is met with negativity. This is a fairly minor change going from three to five, but is it a good idea? I'm not sure. And I know that's a very fence city thing to say, but I think it all depends on conformity. These sorts of changes are always relevant to a certain country or league or organisation and this I think is a recommendation made by the IFAB who effectively sanctioned the rules in the beautiful game and five substitutions was something that was brought in to combat as you say the fatigue and the fitness problems that maybe some of the players might have felt during the coronavirus pandemic where they weren't training for three months and basically they had to come back into top level football playing two games a week to get the schedule completed and that was what summer 2020 
we're now in autumn 2021 and we've gone back to the three substitutions rule and I don't think that we've seen detrimental performances I don't think the football's been poorer for it for the fact we've gone back to three substitutions and also thinking back to the summer of 2020 I don't think the football was better because we had five substitutions managers and players and coaches and pundits are always talking about how there's too much football we've had injury experts such as Ben Dinnery on Football Social Daily in the past who has said all of the evidence points to the fact that the amount of football and the intensity of the game these days means that players are more likely to be subjected to injury and serious injury at that and I think we need to take that into consideration because despite the fact these footballers are paid a lot of money it's still a career for them you just need to look at someone like Jack Wilshere for example who was a Premier League player for 10-12 years is around about 30 years of age and he can't get a club but my overriding feeling is if it's not broke don't fix it we brought it in as a short-term solution to deal with the problem that we had which was trying to cram in you know quarter of a season's worth of games into two months in a summer last year and now we're back to a pretty much usual schedule starting the season in uh, early August and finishing it in mid-May that's kind of the way the, the Premier League season has always worked and we've always had three substitutions the interesting thing with the substitutions is it's you can make five changes, but it's within those three substitution windows, those three opportunities. So you can make five changes, but you've only got three chances to make changes if you're a manager. Um, Which is I, the cut down on time wasting, I guess, isn't it? And the idea that you could have 10 minutes left on the clock and do five different breaks to make substitutions. Yeah, and we could have a totally different style of game. I'm not so sure on this. I think that Everyone else is open to this idea of five substitutions. I think most European leagues have kept five substitutions, nine players on the bench. So I think that that is is something that the Premier League will have to consider, that the other leagues are doing it. Why don't we? We tried this thing in the Premier League where we had a transfer window that closed earlier and it left the Premier League worse off. I'm not sure this is quite as serious as that, but... You know, you risk being isolated and left on your own if you don't make the changes that everyone else makes. I just wonder whether we need it right now. We needed it at the time in summer 2020. Do we need it right now? I'm not sure the football has been worse for the fact that we're still only allowed three subs. I don't think I've even noticed the difference, to be honest with you. I've never noticed the difference between three subs and five subs. I'm not sure it's a huge change to the game, but if it is adopted across Europe and if the IFAB are making this recommendation, it is probably likely although they have the right to choose independently it's likely the Premier League will follow suit I mean we always talk about a level playing field in football Marley and one of the great things about football is that when you step out onto a pitch the underdog can win sometimes you get Burnley beating Manchester City very rarely but sometimes it happens does this affect the idea that it is a level playing field because if you have the option to bring on five players instead of three does that hand a benefit to the bigger sides with the better options on the bench? Uh, yeah, but at the same time, you know, the the better, bigger, better teams can can name a better starting eleven than the smaller teams. So you kind of, I don't think football is ever always going to be completely fair because the ones with the bigger squads and the most money tend to win more. So you know, three subs to five subs, in my opinion, doesn't really change much. Um, if you have your best players available, they they tend to be in the starting lineup. You don't tend to bring them on when the you know the opposition gets a bit tired. You know, oh, right now we'll put we'll put De Bruyne on now because 
you know, Jack Cork's getting tired in the, in the Burnley midfield. It's just, it doesn't really work like that. So, um, I understand the, the point of it, like, in terms of uh, squad depth. But if you know that you're going to have five subs next season, it, it can affect your summer transfer, um, your transfer strategy. You know, buy more players, get get a deeper squad, get more players, get two players for every position if you can, um, and you'll be fine. So, um it's kind of it might look like that but there's 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 ways of of getting around this there's ways of of dealing with it as long as everybody knows what's going on i think everybody can plan for it and it's not not a surprise and you don't all of a sudden have to bring um five players on and counteract what the other team's doing so um yeah just carry on i i can i can see us following everybody else i feel like if you don't it's one of those situations where if you don't follow everyone else you you kind of hurt yourself um you kind of hamstring yourself a little bit um because the the rest of Europe's using five um as a result they're getting much sort of sharper in the in the squads for the Champions League they're using more players um our Champions League teams are using using usually uh, used to using three players uh subs wise so it's probably uh probably makes sense for us to follow everyone and and just use five could it actually potentially benefit the development of players Marley if you've got an option to bring on five subs instead of three it gives you more flexibility the match day squads have already been made bigger this season and although we've seen teams again to mention Burnley failing to fill their entire benches in the past because they haven't got enough first team players available could this give license to managers to maybe fill those extra spots with youth players and potentially if a game's going the right way give those younger players that we don't see getting huge opportunities at the moment that op- option for first team football whereas maybe previously the risk wouldn't be taken with just having those three subs available yeah definitely um it can you know we we look at like manchester city and you know if if the the three subs come off the bench it, it could be you know it could be jesus could be um fernandinho it could be zinchenko and then, but if it's five, then in Man City, a three-one, four-one up, two-nil up, three-nil up, whatever it might be, you then might get to see Cole Palmer, and and um, a few years ago, you might have seen Phil Foden as a as a seventeen, eighteen-year-old. So um, this year, you could see uh, Cole Palmer and Liam Delap or someone like that. So there, there is it, it. It can work in many different ways, I think. And the one thing it could benefit is the youth at every club, because every club's got a youth system. You know Burnley, as we sort of pick on a little bit, but for for good reason. They they don't always fill their bench, but they have a youth system, so they could they could easily put you know two or three eighteen year olds on the on the bench. You don't have to play them; you're not obliged to play them, but you could have them there in case uh, in case you uh, you have the chance to put them on. So it could it could work both ways really. But in terms of uh, youth, I, I don't know whether there could be something like. Um, like uh, a sort of compromise put in so then you you could have like three or four youth products on your bench at any one time and and you know the three you could have three subs for anyone and then you can have two subs that have to come through your youth academy or something like that but even even that I think like just thinking about that is probably stressing me out a bit because I think the Premier League would make an absolute mess of it and everybody would uh, would would find loopholes around it and and things like that. You'd have Man United bringing on Tom Heaton, saying, "Oh well, he actually uh, played for us in you know he, he trained with us and all the rest of it." There's there's ways around everything. So 
we're probably just going to see the standard five subs and you can bring on anyone you want. Could this make the game more entertaining now? You've already nailed your colours to the mast in a very traditional football ain't broke, don't fix it way, which is exactly what we said about VAR and probably everything else previous to it. But actually, I mean, it could fundamentally change the game, couldn't it? I remember a long time ago, going back to the 90s, when David Beckham was kind of in the waning part of his career, there was talk of him being like a almost like a specialist player that you'd bring on late in a game to take a free kick if you had that option, almost like the American kicker rule in American football. I mean, we're never going to see that. We're never going to see players coming on to take penalties or free kicks unless it's Mark Noble in the last minute of a game, obviously. <laughs> That's going to be But could we actually see a more tactical approach, potentially, with players being brought in for particular scenarios? Or, maybe more likely... In terms of entertainment, I mean, it's always going to be better to see fresher legs on the pitch. Yeah, I think the key thing for me, and whether this lends itself to a more entertaining game, I'm not sure. But I think that if you've got the option to bring on five players, I think that makes the players happier because they're more likely to get a game. If you've got five substitute options as a manager, you get to give players more game time. I think that's just something that managers will, will look upon with with glee really because if you can only make three substitutions you've then got four miserable players on the bench and I know if you've got nine players on the bench it's the same thing just knocked down a little bit further but you can keep more players happy if you can change five players I mean if imagine if you brought on five subs at once you can disrupt the entire rhythm of a game it changes the game entirely you can halt momentum completely on making it more entertaining I'm not so sure I think it could make the game more tactical I think football's pretty entertaining as it is, you know. For, but but you take it with a pinch of salt. For every there's a lot of things you could do to make football more entertaining, though. Isn't yeah, absolutely. Like you could yeah. Put players on roller skates, <laughs> make goals, do what you like. To play like Eric Bailly, and <laughs> exactly. Football would be the most entertaining game. But ever. it doesn't mean it's a good idea, <laughs> particularly <laughs> the last one. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I think it's one of those where for every boring nil nil that you get, you get a Manchester United nil Liverpool five. For every game like that, where it's a boring nil-nil draw and it's dreadful, you get Sergio Aguero scoring a 90th minute winner against QPR. So that's kind of part of the reason that those dramatic moments are more memorable because for all of the nil-nils and 1-1s and KG 2-1s that have come before, that's what makes those big, important, massively thrilling games exactly that because of that element. So, you know, it, it could make the game more entertaining, but if every game finishes 4-1, 5-1, 6 football wouldn't be as fun as it is. And it's great to see goals. Like this weekend in the Premier League was brilliant. Chelsea beat Norwich 7-0. Manchester United were beaten by five. Watford scored five against Everton. City scored four against Brighton. There were bags of goals in the Premier League this weekend, which was brilliant. But if it was like that every weekend, it wouldn't be as much of a moment so I'm not sure whether five substitutions would would make that happen but certainly I'm sceptical to be honest but then again we're football fans we don't like change and when change comes around we're always sceptical we didn't like VAR I still don't like VAR probably never will but it's here to stay and I think if we switch to five substitutions that'll be here to stay I don't think it'll be as offensive and obtuse as as VAR is but certainly I think that is it going to make a huge difference to the game maybe in terms of of player welfare, which I guess is the key issue when it comes to this debate. Nothing has changed yet. The Premier League still to make their decision, but the recommendation has been made by the IFAB that that substitution rule does change. We'll have to wait to see what happens in the coming weeks. Right, we're going to talk about my club, West Ham, next. A takeover rumour that actually seems to be genuine. We'll box it off next on Football Social Daily. 
Football's Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football's Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. We're talking Happy Hammers next because there is a takeover rumour affecting the East London club. Sky Sports are reporting that West Ham could be the latest club subject to a multi-million pound takeover. This is also reported by a guy we've had in the podcast a few times called XWHU Employee, who does a podcast called The West Ham Way, who's kind of an ITK in terms of this stuff, seems to have a few feelers inside the club. I think that that's where Sky Sports have got this story from. But the report is that... Daniel Krestinsky, who owns the Czech top flight side Sparta Prague. He's also got big stakes in Royal Mail, owns a substantial part of Sainsbury's, the supermarket as well. He's in advance talks with the club to acquire 27% of West Ham with a view to a possible takeover in the future. So there's clauses in the contract that would allow him to take full control of the club some point down the line. The 27% part of the deal is looking like it will complete at the beginning of November. So potentially a few weeks away for a, from a major stakeholder taking a part of West Ham. That's obviously not going to have a major difference, but the real interest for West Ham fans is going to be what the future holds and whether this Czech businessman is going to potentially be the all-out owner of the football club, which is when the change will happen. Now, there were rumours recently around a takeover from the PIA consortium which never really came to pass they were mainly fronted by a guy who used to be on the apprentice they never felt particularly genuine but here there seems to be a real group of people a sort of real genuine interest in this transfer does it feel like this one's got a little more to it marley than maybe the previous takeover rumors um yeah maybe it it feels that way it feels real doesn't it it feels like real um uh, interest and, and sort of concrete interest. Um, whether or not you'll get Gold, Sullivan and Brady out is another thing because they seem to be uh, rooted in there. But um, I mean, obviously they're all business people. They've they've got uh, they've got the price, I suppose, and they probably will be cut out fully. I, I was reading, was it sixty percent? He's been linked with this Krasinski fella. So um, if look, if it can take West Ham on, then then great. I don't think they're uh, the richest club in terms of like they can't really compete with the top six or the top eight um now especially with newcastle coming in with all the money as well there's another one that's that's blew them out the water i suppose with, with their takeover um so yeah the, the, you know we are going to see more and more clubs need help from from rich foreign owners because there's not that much you know money's you know the inflation's insane now um and you need more money to survive and, and to compete um, in that sort of top half, because you know everyone's just running away with it. You see little old Norwich at the bottom of the bottom of the the league, and the, I think their owners are worth something like a couple of hundred million, and it's it's a lot of money, but it's it's an absolute drop in the ocean compared to what what everyone else is is uh, doing. And, and you see, and then not bridge the gap between the Championship and the Premier League, so you don't want to end up like that. So you've got to find this um, this investment and. You know, it looks like West Ham have found it with um, by signing a few Czech players. They've ended up with a, a Czech fella coming in and saying, "Hey, hang, hey, hang on, with a got... big check." <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> checks everywhere, quite literally. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's I don't know. It's it could be good, I suppose. You know, as I say, West Ham need the money. Um, he seems interested. 
if his if his you know mind's in the right place, then why not? But have you got? Oh, the thing is now, have you have you went round all other nineteen Premier League teams and checked everyone's all right with it? Because that's what Newcastle had to do. <laughs> It's a slightly different scenario potentially with this guy, not least with the finances involved, but also potentially the background and the uh, the moral objections that might rise out of it. But as Marley says, Niall, quite often now a takeover, unless you're talking about Newcastle's money, is going to be more about levelling up than it is about kicking on. And this guy, Kredzidzki, is worth four billion pounds which sounds like a lot of money but how does that fit in terms of the football landscape and in terms of wealthy owners is four billion pounds and obviously he's not going to plow all of that into his football club that he's spending six seven hundred million on in the first place is that enough of a wealth to really change the fortunes of a football club in the current market no and i think it's important that we discuss this again when we talk about ownership the saudi arabians that have taken over newcastle united they have a net worth of, I think it's something ludicrous, like half a trillion pounds. However, that doesn't mean that when they go to the cash point outside Tesco and they put the card in the machine, it says you have five billion pounds. That's not how these things work. So <laughs> despite the fact his net worth is four billion, he doesn't log on to his banking app in the morning, check his accounts and see four billion sat there. It's not quite like that. I'm sure he's an extremely wealthy man, but that's the combination of his assets. Which is a country in Newcastle's case, isn't it? So those assets are always going to be huge. Precisely, yeah. They're, they're, it's a country and uh, it's totally different to this individual. Mr. Kratinsky is a major shareholder in Royal Mail and Sainsbury's. So the UK's postal service and the supermarket Sainsbury's. I didn't, I didn't know you could have shares in, in the Royal Mail. I thought it was nationalized it well no it used to be nationalized but the conservatives sold it off what's going on is is this wake up to money Uh, (laughs) all of a sudden no well i'm just just letting the people know the information jim i mean you've got to be factually correct but i'm pretty sure when george osborne was chancellor i think he he sold royal mail off so it's not nationalized anymore so he owns a major stake in royal mail and part of sainsbury's so in terms of investment into british infrastructure this is someone who knows the landscape pretty well so He knows his onions when it comes to investing in British business. West Ham United, 60,000-seater stadium, plenty of fans around the world. They're now establishing themselves firmly as a top 10 Premier League club after the last two seasons. So they're an attractive proposition right now. And I think with what I've read about this potential investment, it will be, I think, 27% that he's looking to take over with a view to a full takeover if David Gold and David Sullivan decide they want to sell in the future. So I think that's where we're at at the moment. So it's almost like a a precursor to a full takeover. Now, with this investment coming from Mr. Kratinsky, I think that that values West Ham at 600 to 700 million pounds. In order for for Mr. Kratinsky to buy the rest of West Ham United, he'll probably have to pay another 300 million pounds on top of whatever his original investment is. At that point, West Ham could be an established European club, could be winning trophies and could be raking in cash and have built themselves a brand in which that is an accomplishable sum of money to pay. So I think it's smart business from this Czech billionaire, Mr. Kratinsky, to be honest with you. I do think, though, it it does mean exactly what you say, Jim. It's not going to be West Ham are going to be winning the Champions League in two seasons, like you said, levelling up, which is a bit of a buzzword at the moment, isn't it? Now, West Ham are in a position now where they have a good team and they're playing well. They're in the quarterfinal of a cup competition. They're in a European Cup competition at the moment. Could qualify again next season. And the higher up you finish in the Premier League, the more money you get to invest. So I think in terms of West Ham being in a position in which this investment uh, could 
you know, end up being really worth its salt. I think we are getting to that point. So definitely considering what happened when West Ham left the uh, the, uh, the bowling ground, Upton Park, about five or six years ago, it took a little bit of time to get to this position because this is the sort of thing that West Ham fans were promised. So maybe it's a good time for Mr. Kratinsky to strike and, and in, invest some money. But yeah, I, I do think it's not going to be sea changes at West Ham. If he does come in, I think things will pretty probably stay very, very similar to what they are now. And I just think that he might just be in there just to have a little bit of leverage, just so he can go. If David Gold and David Sullivan say, right, we've had enough, we're selling West Ham, he can be the first person to go in there, knowing the club, knowing everyone, having already invested, putting his hand up and going, I'm here, I'll take it off your hands. And I think that's probably what this investment leads itself to. And obviously would give him some kind of say on how the club is run in the interim as well. I've got to say, I enjoy the phrase, knows, some un- knows his onions, when you're talking about a guy who's got a hefty share in Sainsbury's. It's like figuratively and literally knows his onions. Uh, Marley, this is a West club in terms of West Ham. I mean, a lot of West Ham fans will say we're the biggest, second biggest club in London at the moment. Chelsea, West Ham and Tottenham, Arsenal are some way below. But I think realistically, you're looking at kind of maybe fourth, in terms of, if you're judging a club on big, I mean, it's kind of a weird thing to do, isn't it, saying we're the biggest club. But they're in a position at the moment where it's going quite well on the pitch. There's just been planning permission granted for the London Stadium to be increased to 65,000 capacity, which makes it the biggest stadium in London. They are becoming an attractive proposition for a buyer to come in. But at the same time, some credit has to go to the board, doesn't it, for getting the club to this position albeit a few years later than was originally promised with the improvements on the pitch with the stadium improvements both in terms of size and in terms of atmosphere do you see a scenario where the negativity around gold and sullivan and the hatred from the fans towards them is ever going to change or is that relationship too damaged now are they too far down the line that there won't be a scenario where actually they can become beloved owners um i i don't know I think you're better positioned to answer that one because I don't really know if... I know the West Ham fans tend to dislike, um, you know, Gold, Sullivan, Brady, but is it to an irreversible level? Um, Because the way I see it, I don't think they've changed too much um, in terms of the previous sort of few years. You know, they've... They've got the, the I think the best thing they've done was get get the stadium and somehow get it for free and get the taxpayer to pay for it because that's that's give the club the um, the sort of impetus to 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 bounce on and and to move up a little bit um, as well. I think they've you know hiring Moyes and making them a a solid team has has worked out for them. Whether they knew that you know no one can know anything about where a manager is going to take you. It doesn't matter whether you. are you're absolutely certain he's going to bring success to your club. He, he might not. Like, so I think that they've they've rode the luck a little bit there, and it's just a time with West Ham where everything's coming together quite nicely, and everything's a bit hunky dory at the minute. Everything's there's no real problems on the horizon. They they usually tends to be with West Ham. Uh, there's usually only you know one turn away from absolute disaster, but it doesn't seem like that at the minute. Um, so yeah, every, everything's going going fine. I'd stop short of saying this is Golden Sullivan's amazing um, ownership because I feel like a lot of it is just like a, a perfect storm almost and I don't know how much they've done to um, to to cause that. 
I think that is the narrative around Gold and Sullivan, though. The kind of idea that they've got lucky. They got lucky managing to get David Moyes and him doing well as a manager when his previous appointments had been poor. They got lucky on the pitch. They got lucky with the stadium. It's kind of like, I do think that sometimes they deserve a little bit. I mean, I say, and I'm not someone who likes the current regime at West Ham. I don't think they run the club particularly well. But I think the main problem from the fans is they run the club as a business. They have loaned the club a lot of money and they take dividends from those loans at quite a high percentage return and they also run the club quite frugally they run it as a business they're not plowing a load of their money into it but I've said this before I don't really see a scenario where owners should do that I don't think it should be on a bound for the owner of a football club to continually plow their money into a team that is not returning that investment so as much as I dislike them I think at the same time they deserve some credit they deserve credit for saving the football club from financial disaster which they did if they hadn't bought West Ham then West Ham probably would have gone into administration they deserve credit for some of their business acumen in terms of moving to the London Stadium what they don't deserve credit for is the horrific way they manage themselves in the media and the outright lies that they've told the supporters of the football club which is where I think the relationship has become damaged when you say they deserve credit for saving the club 10 years ago I completely respect and appreciate that opinion but that was 10 years ago. Have we not reached a point where we can go, thank you for that, but why don't you invest a little bit more now? For instance, my club, every time we're doing badly, which we are at the moment, we always get people that come out in force and say, well, at least we've got a football club to support, which is right. It's totally correct. Portsmouth nearly went out of business, but that was that was a time gone by. We, we've been through and done that. Now we are solvent, we are stable and we exist. So let's focus on what we have got rather than what we nearly didn't have. And I appreciate it's kind of respecting what nearly happened, but we're 10 years down the line and it feels like, you know, what what are they in it for apart from being West Ham fans and they can sit in the director's box and watch all the games for free and they don't have to spend that much money? They, they, want, a, they want a buyer. I think that's clearly what they've laid out from the start. They do want to sell the football club, but they want to sell the football club at a point. And I believe there's some kind of arrangement with London Stadium where they have to hand a certain amount of any buyout or any fee they get for the club back to the Olympic Committee or London Stadium or whoever if they sell before Mm. a certain time. But if they wait to this point, then they take all the money. That's... I think, and I think it's. I've got a feeling it's 2023. I forget without looking up the details. Right. So, with with that in mind, then this guy coming in, this Czech billionaire, do you think it is similar to what I said before about he's kind of there taking a nearly 30% share just for the time being, just to kind of sit there and wait until Sol- Sullivan and Gold say, "All right, okay, we're ready to sell up now," and then he can just fund the rest. I think that's exactly what it is. I think it's there to kind of almost protect his own investment, kind of put a marker down and go. Look, here are my intentions. This contribution now, this investment now, means that when the opportunity, like um, like an, a, a um, what's the word, a clause to buy in a loan agreement, it kind of you're going, we're going to take a step here because we know we want this player mm. down the line, but we're going to push it. We're going to kind of make our intentions clear now, and in twelve months, whenever it is, we'll make that full investment. I, I, that feels like what's happening. Yeah, maybe. I just think. If it is a case of of waiting, then it does feel like this is just this is this is quite a watershed moment then for West Ham, because I don't think they're going to change the minds of people 
who have already made their mind up. I don't think I think West Ham could win the Europa League this season. I still think there'd be mm. hostility towards the owners. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it is a permanently damaged relationship and there'll be a lot of West Ham fans happy about the potential news of a takeover anyway. And that takeover could lead to some tasty transfers. Who knows? But it's Newcastle that are right at the centre of that transfer rumour mill at the moment. And we're going to talk about some of the gossip ahead of the transfer window opening in January. Still October, by the way. And we'll do it next on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Let's finish today's podcast on Football Social Daily, your daily Premier League show with a few transfer rumours and Newcastle are at the centre of a lot of transfer storms at the moment. So that seems like the sensible place to start, particularly with one player who we'll be familiar with in the Premier League, Belgium forward Eden Hazard, who is now 30, currently playing football at Real Madrid. ESPN reporting that both Newcastle and Chelsea are interested in bringing him back to the Premier League. Now, Loads of players being linked with a move to Newcastle United at the moment. It would take probably the entire 45-minute podcast to rattle them all off, Marley. But is this one of the ones? Is Eden Hazard one of the players that takes your interest? <laughs> it's absolutely bizarre that we you sort of like even asking me this question. I'm not used to this all. We've got money and who do we spend it on <laughs> just, thing? I d- it's just I don't know mental, isn't it? You're in the relegation zone you haven't won a game and we're talking about Eden Hazard going to St James's Park it's bonkers but I'm here for it I love it is he better than Matt Ritchie that's the question that we're all asking (laughs) (laughs) hey I've never seen him kick a corner flag when he scores a goal so no not yet um it's weird isn't it I don't I don't understand where these rumors are coming from because we've got no one in place to actually make the signings and no one for them to come and bloody play for so I don't know where this is going Uh, Where this is even coming from, I think it's just somebody saying, oh, well, he's not in in favour at Real Madrid. He's not in favour at Real Madrid because he's been injured for the last three years, basically. Um, So even I feel funny about saying I don't think it's a good investment because he's spent so much time injured. He doesn't seem to have his, you know, his hamstrings go all the time. Um, I just... For the money you'd be spending, I think it's, it's, uh, it's not the wisest way to spend it. However... If he comes back to the Premier League, I'd probably see him always back at Chelsea because I don't think he he was ever a hundred percent in leaving Chelsea. I, I always thought he um he had he, he moved because he had to. It was the only time um only time he was going to get to go and play for Real Madrid, and it hasn't really worked so far. When they get a new manager, when Ancelotti gets sacked in a year or eighteen months' time, are they going to want him when he's thirty, thirty one, whatever he is? Um, probably not. So he's probably looking for another club in the next year or so. Um, I don't think he's kind of fancy coming um, to a relegation fighting team in January or, or the summer and with no guarantees of anything except a, a, a shitload of money. Um, it's yeah, it's just weird. I don't, I don't see where it's come from. I don't see it happening. Um, and next, uh, <laughs> who's next on the list? Well, if we looked at Chelsea then, Niall, as the potential destination, does it feel like a weird step for them as well? Because I've heard some sources reporting that he'll come in in January, Hakim Ziyech will be offloaded. But I don't know if Ziyech has been worse for Chelsea than Hazard has for Real Madrid. It feels like this could be more Real Madrid wanting to get rid of a player that hasn't particularly impressed for them, rather than Chelsea or Newcastle wanting to recruit. Yeah, I think... 
I've read a few reports recently that Thomas Tuchel's keen to bring in another forward player in the transfer window just to ease the pressure on Lukaku. Obviously, Lukaku's injured at the moment. He's got a, a bad ankle. I think he'll be out for another five or six weeks, maybe, and he'll probably be back a couple of weeks after the international break. And with a £97.5 million price tag, you're going to get criticism, naturally. It's just part of the game these days. If you cost a lot of money, people are going to look at you and say, oh, is he worth it? Is he not worth it? And I don't think he had scored in six games before he picked up that injury for Chelsea. Timo Werner's also out. So in terms of players who they can rely on through the middle at the moment, they're using Kai Havertz as the, as the lone striker. Now, they played Southampton in the Carabao Cup. I think the next couple of games, they've got Malmo in the Champions League, uh, next week, I think they've got um, uh, Newcastle United this weekend. So it's not going to be too difficult for them, I don't think, in terms of the fixtures to still find a way to win without two key forward players. If Eden Hazard is one of the players in which Chelsea are looking at to come in and ease the pressure on Lukaku, then that makes for a really interesting conversation because sometimes players just fit at certain clubs. And... I think that Eden Hazard, if he came back to the Premier League, would he touch down and pick up where he left off for Chelsea? I'm not so sure. Maybe that sort of player isn't in there anymore. I mean, I'd love to say that it is, but from the evidence we've seen at Real Madrid, he's not really shown much. He's had a horrible time with injury, has Hazard, but he's not going to come for cheap. He hasn't had much game time, but he's still a top quality player. And it wouldn't surprise me if Chelsea did bring him back because... They're the sort of club that I think, with Roman Abramovich at the helm, certainly, they do have this element of romanticism about them. Uh, Roman Abramovich was a huge fan of Fernando Torres, particularly when he was at Liverpool, and he always gave Chelsea a problem when he was a Liverpool player. And so, therefore, even after he had bust his knee at the World Cup in 2010, he still paid £50 for him. And he came to Chelsea, and he wasn't the same player that was at Liverpool, but he signed him because he was a a big fan of him. Um, Similarly to, to some other players who... I won't name, but Chelsea certainly with Abramovich at the helm do have this element of romanticism where, you know, look at Lukaku, for example, Romelu's back home, back where it all started for him, back where he didn't really get a chance and he's got the opportunity to put it all right and score a load of goals and fire Chelsea to the title. Mourinho's return as well, you you could file under that, couldn't you? Yeah, Mourinho came back and it was all kind of the hero returns home. And so that's why I think that there is legs in this Eden Hazard story possibly coming back to Chelsea. I can see it happening. Whether it will happen or not now, Thomas Tuchel is the manager. I'm not so sure. I think he's pretty smart with the ideas and plans he has tactically for Chelsea moving forward. So I think certainly the reports that we've seen about them wanting to bring in another striker in January could be fair, could be accurate because Werner hasn't exactly been scintillating. Havertz has been pretty good, scored a goal in the Champions League final, won't forget that, but not maybe not quite the impact that Chelsea fans or Chelsea staff would have liked. And then Hakim Ziyech has been injured and, and not really been as impactful at all as, as many would have hoped. So, yeah, I guess Chelsea, they've always done that. They've always strengthened in transfer windows. I can't think of a transfer window in the last 10 years where they haven't signed someone or made some sort of addition. So I definitely think that there's possibility for that. I think maybe at centre-back is probably where they'll look more first and foremost, though, with Christensen and Rudiger, I think, both out of contract in the summer. So, yeah, I definitely think that there's legs in the Eden Hazard thing. On the story that Nile hinted at there, it's been reported by the success, the success, the express, that Thomas Tuchel is looking for some kind of backup for Lukaku to ease the pressure on him. Now, it feels like Lukaku's return to Chelsea hasn't quite 
grabbed the headlines that it could have. And that could be down to pressure. It could be down to the pressure of being a lone striker. It could be down to the pressure of the price tag. But we've seen him be probably not lived up to the billing at Manchester United previously, Marley. Do we sort of sense that narrative around Lukaku shifting once again, having gone those games without scoring before his injury and maybe not quite hit the heights that many expected him to hit at Chelsea. I mean, the, the kind of expectation from Chelsea fans, I think, was him to have 30 goals at this stage in the season. And he's way off that at the moment. So do you think there could be that negativity and that kind of attitude towards him changing in the same way it did at Manchester United? Um, there, there's certainly a start a start of it. Um, I don't know whether what it'll end up like, obviously, but um, it sounds harsh for Lukaku, this, you know, as, as you got... Has he got something to prove? Because he scored so many goals around the world, and and you know been around for for you know basically ten years now. But there was always a question about him in the Premier League, um, and I don't think I don't think that could be denied. Um, his his form at Man United was god awful. Um, his his play was terrible towards the end. He was genuinely a, a liability. Um, he seems more focused now. I don't think he's. He's hit top form yet, but he, I, f- I feel like he will. Um, I feel like he's got enough about him. You know, he's got enough experience. He's got enough talent to to sort of flourish into the best striker in the world. He's, that's how high, high his ceiling is. But I feel like it's um, his injuries came at a bad time because he could have had. I mean, the the the. Fixtures for Chelsea right now, you know, Malmo, Newcastle at the weekend, Norwich last weekend. He could have had easily twelve goals in those games. Like those those four games, like that's a, a ridiculous, ridiculously easy run, and it could have had um, a massive sort of effect on his confidence and, and really pumped him up. And I think that's why he played against Malmo in the first um, in the first game in the Champions League because he should have. Yeah, I think he wanted it to as a bit of a booster, and he ended up getting snapped in the penalty box and and doing his ankle, and, and now he's going to miss, you know, three or four weeks or whatever it might be. So his um his confidence just needs to come back. Basically, he's not at the level he was at Man United, where he's he was completely. It looked like the whole sort of game was swallowing swallowing him up a little bit, but um the 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 doubts are there, I suppose. It's just whether he lets them get to him because. Mentally, I feel like he's strong enough to to deal with it and uh, and to answer the critics. But uh, it's one thing thinking it; it's another thing doing it. Because his his record against the the better clubs was always poor, and it always has been in in his Premier League career. So he needs to uh, to crack on and and silence some some doubters because they are the doubters, but they're not just randomly haters. They have got something genuinely there as to say this is a hole in in what he's done in the game Lukaku hasn't scored against the best clubs he's bullied the smaller ones um time after time after time for for years and years now so he needs to step up and uh, and be the 100 million pound striker that Chelsea thought he was another player that potentially needs to silence the doubters at the moment is Raheem Sterling who seems to be falling down the pecking order at Manchester City and Football London are reporting that Arsenal are interested in him but also now Barcelona as well. I mean, the big question here now is whether Raheem City's Raheem City's <laughs> Raheem Sterling's time is coming to an end at Manchester City. Does it feel like he could be leaving that club soon? Yeah, I think it does. I don't think he'll be going to Arsenal though. 
and I'm not sure Barcelona are in a position where they can sign him at the moment. So Why not Arsenal? Because I think Arsenal makes a lot of sense, not only in the terms of way, the way they play, but also Mikel Arteta, when he was at City, was credited with a lot of the development of Raheem Sterling. So those two clearly have a relationship. So is it purely that City to Arsenal would feel like a big step down, but you don't see that one happening? Yeah, at the moment, it is a big step down. I'm sorry to disrespect Arsenal, who, by the way, I know we slag off on the podcast, but they haven't lost in two months since they lost 5-0 to City at the end of August. You know, they've not they've not lost in any competition. They've looked really, really good in recent games. They were excellent against Aston Villa on Friday night. And they are looking up. But the problem is with Arsenal is we'll have to wait and see at the end of the season where they are. If they're not in the Champions League and you're Raheem Sterling, why would you swap Manchester City where you're playing in the Champions League and you're competing at the top end of the table for Arsenal, who could possibly be in the Europa League. They might finish in the top four, who knows? But, you know, in terms of what Raheem Sterling wants to achieve in his career, is he going to be able to do that with Arsenal, considering he's only 25? I know he's been around for years, but he's only in his mid-20s. He's got so many years left of his career and so many things left to achieve. And I think the thing is... He did an interview recently, didn't he, saying he'd quite like to try his hand abroad one day. And with that, there's been a lot of speculation since then. I think what we need to remember is Pep Guardiola, as Manchester City manager, has overseen a number of occasions where players have been in form and then they've gone off the boil. Only a select handful of players can I think of that have been in the squad and performed consistently at a level every single time. One of them's Kevin De Bruyne, even to the point where by the end of his time at City, Vincent Company wasn't really being used until the end of a season when they needed the experience. You know, even so, someone like Bernardo Silva, who's been brilliant this season for Manchester City, was brilliant two or three seasons ago for Manchester City, but last year had a bit of a rubbish time of it. And I think that that, that happens. Aguero last season wasn't really given any games and it was his last season at the club. So I just think it's one of those things where Pep Guardiola, I don't think is adverse to leaving his big name players out of the side if they're not playing well. And at the moment, Raheem Sterling isn't playing well enough to get more game time. And I just think that's why it feels like his time's coming to an end. He's not been as prolific a goal scorer as he was a couple of seasons ago where he was banging them in for fun and it was his highest goal scorer in return. So I think all of these things lend themselves to people understanding and believing that it's time for him to leave Manchester City. I'm not surprised if that is the case. I can see it happening, but I don't think it could be to Arsenal and I don't think it would be to Barcelona. Let's do one more story. We're going to turn to The Athletic who are reporting that Spurs are willing to let England midfielder Deli Alley who's 25, leave the club in January. He's obviously going to come to Newcastle, Marley. It's no question of that if he does leave Spurs. He's coming to Newcastle. Firstly, <laughs> how is he only 25? I thought Deli Alley was approaching his 30s now. But is he in danger of being one of those players that go through their entire career without quite filling their potential? They kind of have this promise of being absolutely world-class but never quite live up to it. It still feels to me like there is some unlocked potential in Deli Alley. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think when he, you know, when he burst on the scene, he came came in from MK Dons and he scored. I think he scored eighteen goals in his first full season, and he was like, he was genuine. You know, the the next big thing for England, he was the number one sort of man you'd build your team round. Um, and now he's he's in and out of the Spurs team. He's you know didn't play under Mourinho at all. Basically, we've seen in the documentary that he was a, a bad trainer. Um, that's going to wind coaches up. It doesn't matter how good you are on the pitch. If you don't show it in training, 
it's hard for a coach to then pick you and and to sort of choose the team to carry you sort of thing. So he he probably does need another challenge. Um, he probably needs the right coach for him to get him back into that uh, into that space where he can he can refulfill his talent because at one point, as I said before, you know he, he was he was filling his talent. He was he was making the most of his potential. Remember that goal he scored against Crystal Palace was ridiculous, and he scored tons of them. He scored loads of goals, um, and you know was was such a had such a high ceiling, and then just fell through the floor instead of breaking through the ceiling even more. So, it's um, it feels to me like he needs another challenge, or he could probably do with Pochettino back to be honest. But he's not going to PSG anytime soon, is he? And whether Pochettino comes back to England at some point and and takes him on again, I'm not sure. But in the meantime. Uh, it does seem like it's all ending in a bit sour at, at Spurs for him. So whether he'll come, whether he'll come to Newcastle, I don't know. It's been linked. I think Newcastle were trying to buy him alongside Spurs when he left MK Dons five or six years ago. But mm. you know that's a long time ago. Can you imagine Deli Ali and Jesse Lingard <laughs> both at Newcastle. <laughs> it's like the man-child midfield. <laughs> that's the thing. Like, it's it's another thing. I don't even know. You know who who we're even looking at so this just seems like player needs a club who can be linking with no Newcastle might have him but I feel like it's like throwing a dart in a board blindfolded you don't know where he's going to end up but it also seems like it could have some truth if if uh, that everything makes sense he's, he's young um, he's young enough to you know have a get a good investment into him and and get a few years out of him He's good enough to find his form again. If he if he gets anywhere near that level he was at, then he's uh, then he's worth the investment. So it, you know could be could be there for him. You surprised to see him linked with a move away from Spurs, nah? Because it, Spurs Tottenham are in a weird situation at the moment. It feels like they haven't got it quite right. It feels like there's something needs to happen there. They need to rebuild that football club, be it with you know Espirito Santo at the helm or with someone else at the helm, but. Like I say, this is a player in Deli Alley who has got that spark. He has got that potential. Does he feel like the kind of player that you could kind of rebuild around almost? Yeah, there's no doubt he's a talented football player. We just haven't seen it enough in the last few seasons. And I think what Marley said when he came in from MK Dons, I think that is the key. Because I think he came in from MK Dons as a 19-year-old, something like that. You know, it was 18, 19-year-old. And then to come in and have such an impact and it almost like he hit the ground running so well that everyone's expecting that from him season upon season upon season and let's not forget now like you say he's only 25 he's been a professional footballer now for nine years he was a professional at 16 for MK Dons he was like a wonder kid coming through at MK Dons and I think that that can take its toll to be a professional for that long be 25. I think Raheem Sterling probably is at a similar point where he might just have hit a lull and a dip and maybe he needs a bit of a change. Maybe things at Tottenham aren't going the way that he wants them to go and maybe he is considering a move away. The fact that the Athletic report that Tottenham are considering letting him leave I think shows you the opinion of Ali within the club at this moment in time. Not to say that they don't appreciate his talent and his quality and respect him as a character. I just think that maybe we've reached a point where they feel like they don't need him anymore because he's not producing enough on a regular basis. And I think that's a fair enough comment to make. And it's not a surprise that Tottenham, that's come out of Tottenham via The Athletic, that 
Deli Ali, you know, is, is welcome to leave the club if required. We've seen that a number of times with big players in the past. So maybe it, do, it does need something like what Jesse Lingard had, where he went to West Ham. And it was very similar for Lingard at Manchester United. He was respected within the fan base. He was quite a liked character within the dressing room. And yet he wasn't getting games. And when he was getting games, he wasn't really performing. And so he went on loan to West Ham after, I think, just two games for Manchester United last season. Went to West Ham on loan in January for six months and was brilliant. Now he's back at Manchester United, obviously, and probably not playing as many games as he would like himself. But look at what that move did for him. It got him back in the England squad. It got his confidence back up again. And maybe that's what he needs, Deli Ali. Maybe he's in a similar spot to Jesse Lingard, as you kind of joked about him a minute ago. But maybe Deli Ali just needs a move away, just a loan move, see what happens, go to Europe, perhaps, something like what Tammy Abraham's done, uh, and, and kind of build stuff there. So. It's not a surprise to see Deli Ali being linked with a move away, but I do think that there is still a player in there and there's still value to him. As someone who's just 25 years old, even if it takes another two years for him to hit his peak, it's still 27 years of age and there's plenty of career left ahead of him. So it's a shame to see him dip in form like he has done. But I do think that if he moves away, maybe it is the right time to go and do that and, and get a loan deal and see what he can do in terms of improvements for the for the months and seasons ahead. Once again, it is October. The transfer window opens in January. There is plenty of time for things to change, including players playing their ways back into managers' plans. But we will keep you up to date with the latest transfer news on your daily football show football social daily that is it for today's podcast marley niall nice one cheers guys cheers lads you can hear more from niall this weekend on the dugout which will be available later on today a full premier league preview with the professionals who know the game better than anyone else who's on this weekend's show niall We've got Dean Hammond, who used to play for Leicester, Brighton and Southampton and former England and Everton player Trevor Stevens with us as well. There you go. Catch up with all the latest from the Premier League this weekend on The Dugout. Click subscribe now on your podcast feed. Click follow or whatever it is that's available in your podcasting app and we'll get that show to you as soon as it's ready. Have a great weekend. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode.